1: And today we're going to be in Doctrine and Covenants 12 and
0: 13. And these are very different, very heavy sections, and yet they fit on almost a single page. And they are very powerful. We're going to tackle them separately. Now, section 12 is just a gem because of the Knight family. And you're going to be tempted to just read section 12 and say, oh, that's a cute section, that's really sweet, and you're going to brush it off. But what makes section 12 so powerful is the Knight family. They are one of the jewels in the crown of the early church. And they have left a legacy with all of us that we need to follow. And so not only the history of the Knight family, but what the Lord says to Joseph Knight as instructions to all of us in the church are significant. So, Mike, why don't you start us off and just give us the history of the Knight family. This is one of the great families of the Restoration, wouldn't you say? Yeah, they are totally faithful.
1: They're a part of what's called the Colville branch in early church history, And the Colville branch is a group of people that were just stalwarts. I mean, I'm going to go through some of these names. They may sound familiar to some of you. The Carters, the DeMills, the Harrises, the Hines, the Knight's, the Peck's, the Smith's. This early branch is the first branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints of the Restoration. And the nucleus of this early group is the Knight family. And I'll be honest, some of the stuff it really tugs at my heartstrings as I read about some of their sufferings and their faith. Um, they're inspiring. So I'm really inspired by the Knight family. Okay. So with that in mind, a couple things, Joseph Knight and Polly Knight are born in the 1770s, right before the Revolutionary War. So he was born in 1772 and Polly is born in 1774. So when they meet Joseph, they're older. There weren't just a ton of old people walking around like Americans live to an old age now. But back then, if you're in your 50s, you're seasoned. And so these guys are really seasoned and they've done well for themselves. They had a a farm of over 100 acres and they also have a grist mill that they had built. And historian William G. Hartley says that he wasn't rich. But he possessed enough of the world's goods to secure, not only for himself and his family, not only the necessities, but the comforts of life. So they're doing really well. And I want to talk a little bit about Joseph Knight's religious leanings before we get into how he met Joseph, why these religious leanings matter to Joseph, and why they matter to the Book of Mormon and to the Restoration. And while I don't totally necessarily agree with all of these
0: leanings that Joseph
1: Knight Sr. had— I see a lot of these
0: in our faith. Mike has the advantage of being born and raised in the gospel and having seen truth, and it's tremendously insightful to know that Joseph Knight came to these conclusions without the insight that you and I have, Mike. I just think it's astounding that he came to whatever conclusion he could come to with such limited resources in his day. Yeah. So if you've ever heard the term universalism,
1: that's what he is. He's a universalist. Short story, what a universalist is, is it's a response to Calvinism. On one hand, you have Calvinism, God's decided the winners and losers. On on the other hand, you have universalism, God's going to bring everyone home. And these two Christian theologies are in disagreement. Calvinism, short story, is this idea that God has predetermined winners and losers. Who is going to be saved and who's going to be damned? God's already decided And so universalism is a push against this that says, eventually God's will will come to pass that his children will be saved. In other words, this God that believes in universal salvation. Now the origins of universalism actually go way, way back in history to a guy by the name of Origen. And he lived in 185. He was the earliest Christian thinker that we have who's writing about this. And when, when he was a young man, he wrote a thing called origins, first principles. And in this, he basically says that all intelligent beings, men, angels, and devils were created good and equal, but they have absolute free will. Some of them, like the devils, through the misuse of their free will, turned away from God and they fell into degrees of sin. And so those who fell furthest became devils and so forth, but that through the process of purification, Eventually, and even after death, it will take a long time. His thought was, God didn't will to just punish us to heaven or hell, He willed to bring us home. And so, Origen's thinking was that hell must be a temporary place for us to eventually be purified and then come back through the grace of Christ back into God's presence. Now, we'll see some of this, won't we, Bryce, as we get in the Doctrine of Covenants, like section 19. The Lord's going to lay some of these things out about well, what is hell. And in, in the, the concept of hell in our Latter-day Saint theology is a little bit different, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and he's going to quite often counter what converts are bringing into the church. You know, when the Quakers come in, we get section 49. So the Lord finds himself often having to correct misunderstandings as large groups join the church. And so you'll find that throughout the Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah.
1: So Origen really did, early, early on, is thinking God wants to bring us home. Now, later after origin, so this is way before John Calvin, there's a fellow by the name of Augustine, and he's another Christian thinker, and some Christians call him the father of what the Western tradition of Christianity. And Augustine essentially was, he was Calvinist before Calvin. He talked about this idea that there was those that would be saved and those that would be damned, and it was just kind of predestined. And he's kind of misinterpreting some of this stuff in Romans. There's a great book out there by Brent Schmidt. And he wrote a book about this about charis, the concept of grace. He has another one coming out on pistis, the concept of faith. And Brent Schmidt is a is a classic scholar, knows Greek, and he talks about how Augustine didn't even understand the Greek that he was interpreting, and he even admits it. He's like, "Hey, I'm not the best at Greek," and he kind of writes Christian theology. Augustine basically says, based on his reading of Romans, that God's decided the winners and losers. And so this is all the precursors to Calvinism, and this is the precursors to universalism. On one hand, you have Calvinism, God's decided the winners and losers. On on the other hand, you have universalism, God's going to bring everyone home. And these two Christian theologies are in disagreement.
0: But members of the church are coming in from both camps. Yes, So one of the challenges that we're going to face in the church is that people are coming in from both camps, many camps, not just Calvinism and Universalism, but we've got the Campbellites. We've got so many different schools of thoughts. We're going to have Quakers come into the church. And just like Jesus said in the New Testament, the gospel net gathers from every kind. That's now going to be a major challenge is how do we help people keep what's true And maybe let go of what's not true and accept the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And hence we love the Knight family because not only do they come in with some preconceived notions, but they're very quick to accept the fullness of the gospel, very humble about it as well. They don't come in saying, well, here's what's true and here's what's false and resist the falsehood. They come in saying, here's what we believe. And they accept so much of what Joseph then teaches them.
1: Exactly. So at that point, that's where his leanings are. So Father Joseph Knight becomes acquainted with Joseph in 1826. Joseph's single, he's 20 years old, and he comes down south and he's working for this guy named Josiah Stoll. And while he's working for them, he also lodges with the Knight family and he's doing manual labor. We think he probably worked at their mill, but we know that he worked in their farm, and he's bunking with Joseph Knight Jr. And according to Joseph Knight Jr., in November of 1826, he says this. He says, Joseph made known to us that he'd seen a vision and that a personage appeared to him, and he told him where there was a gold book of ancient date buried, and that if he would follow the direction of the angel, he would get it. But he told us, he told us all of this in secret. Another son of Joseph Knight's, his name is Newell. Newell's going to be a big deal in church history. He said that Joseph Smith visited them often. And he says, we were very impressed with the truthfulness of his statements concerning the plates of the Book of Mormon, which had been shown to him by an angel of the Lord. And then he says, my father and I believed him. And I think we were the first to do so after his own family. And so this is a believing family. They know Joseph when he's 20. And as I've been pondering some of these things, and I don't know, but I think one of the reasons why they're believing, and I think one of the reasons why the early Colville branch is so strong, and there's such a sense of faith there, and there's such a sense of discontent in Palmyra, I think part of it is they're getting the story straight from Joseph. When he's talking to the Knights... They're listening. And the truth can be told in what I call the ideal speech condition. It isn't what he said or she said. They're hearing it from Joseph. And these people, that this knight family, they stay true through and through all the way. And it starts before Joseph even gets the plates. And so that's kind of the context of how they meet. So if you think about this, this early group of saints, they come into the church through Joseph's connection with the knights. Well, why is he there? Well, he's there because he's poor. He's got to get work where there's work. And so he's coming down there to do this work, this manual labor. And in so doing, the church is blessed. So think about this. If someone gets laid off or they lose a job, sometimes we think that's the worst parade of horribles, but maybe sometimes out of those hard circumstances, blessings can come. And so his family is poor, but due to that poverty, he meets the Knights. So That's a little bit of background as to who they are. Then we get into section 12, which we'll talk about in some other sections, like the 23rd section, which is the Lord telling him to unite with the true church. And they do. Father Knight's baptized June of 1830 by Oliver Cowdery. They're one of the first saints told to leave New York and settle in Ohio. So they do. And then later they're told to journey to Missouri. And so the Knights move. They move to Missouri in 1831, And in 1831, Polly, it's a hard journey for her. Uh, And she's Joseph Knight's wife, and she passes away in Missouri when they get there. There's a really good article, if you wanna read by William Hartley that we'll link in the show notes, close friends as witnesses, and he's a great biographer of the Knight family and has spoken about them extensively. He writes about this, and he just talks about how it was a difficult move for the Knight family to build the kingdom of God. Like I said, Polly dies, but many of the family is faithful. And so the twelve men who represent the twelve tribes of Israel that lay the foundation stones for the foundation of Zion in Missouri, of those twelve guys, five of them are the knights.
0: So like they're the core. And Polly so desperately wanted to live to get to Zion. She knew she wasn't gonna make it, and it was just her greatest desire. I wanna step foot on Zion. And section fifty-eight is all about that, and and it begins with where much tribulation is, there shall come much blessings. And part of that is a foreshadowing of what Zion's going to go through, but a lot of that is looking back and paying tribute to Pauline Knight and the Knight family that, yes, you've dealt with tribulation, but great things are coming. So just a wonderful family here.
1: So she dies, and then her sister-in-law, her husband dies. Her name's Phoebe. And so Phoebe has some children, but she has no husband. Joseph Knight has many children, but he has no wife. And so they get married. And then by the time all is said and done, Phoebe has two more children. And that makes Joseph Knight Sr. the father of 13 children or stepchildren. So he's got quite a big family by the time his life is over. Phoebe's maiden name is is Peck. So he he marries Phoebe Crosby Peck. They get to Missouri. And when I say they, I mean the Colville branch and many members. And they think, oh my gosh, we're going to build Zion. And then everything goes wrong. And in the midst of this, there's a lot of violence. There's the Jackson County violence, and then we're gonna go north. There's gonna be the Clay County violence, and and there's even more in 1838. And we'll talk a little bit about the 1838 violence when we get to David Whitmer's apostasy, because some of that violence affects him. We'll see that when we get to the 14 through 17 sections. But here, there's a really cool story that I wanna share about the 1833 violence. So Newell Knight, he's married to this gal named Sally Knight. And in the midst of this violence, Newell Knight saves a man from death. That's kind of a big deal in church history. And his name is Philo Double. And I want to read just an excerpt from this experience to kind of give you a flavor of who Newell is and who Philo is. In the winter of 1833, There was a lot of violence exchanged between some of the Missourians and the Latter-day Saints, and some of the Saints uh, lost their lives. And one man by the name of Philo Dibble, he is shot, and he's shot in the belly. And a lot of times, that would be a fatal wound, because how are you going to get the bullet out? And so in his own words, this is what Philo Dibble says. He comes home, and he's just so thirsty. And he says, I wanted to stop at Brother Whitmer's and lay down but the house was full of women and children and they're frightened. There's all this chaos at this night. So he says, I continued on and I arrived home or rather at a house in a field that the mob had not torn down, which was near my home. There I found my wife and my two children and a number of other women who had assembled. I told them I was shot and I just needed to lay down. So Philo double gets a bed and he lays down and he says, thinking of what the mob had said, I became frightened And so they assisted me upstairs. And I told them, however, that I couldn't stay there because the pain was too great. And so they brought me downstairs again. And my wife went out to see if she could find any of the brethren. In searching for them, she got lost in the woods and was gone two hours, but learned that all the brethren had gone to the Colville branch. There they are again, the Colville branch. They're going to pop up again and again in church history. They were three miles distant. Taking all the wounded with them save myself. The next morning, I was taken further from the road, that I might be concealed from the mob. So imagine you've been shot in the belly all night long and you're bleeding internally. Philo writes, I bled inwardly until my body was filled with blood and I remained in this condition until the next day at 5 p.m. I was examined by a surgeon who was a surgeon from the Black Hawk War who said that he had seen a great many men wounded but never saw one wounded as, as I that ever lived. So he pronounced me a dead man. David Whitmer, however, sent me word that I should live and not die, but I could see that I would not recover. After the surgeon left me, brother Newell Knight came to see me. So Newell Knight is Joseph Knight's son. Newell Knight came to see me and he sat down on the side of my bed. He laid his hand on my head, but he never spoke. I felt the spirit resting upon me at the crown of my head before his hand ever touched me. And I knew immediately that I was going to be healed. It seemed to form like a ring under my skin and followed down my body. When the ring came to the wound, another ring formed around the first bullet hole, also the second and the third, and then a ring formed on each shoulder and on each hip and followed down to the ends of my fingers and toes and then left me. He says, I immediately arose and then I discharged three quarts of blood or more with some pieces of my clothes that had been driven into my body by the bullets. I then dressed myself and went outdoors. And I saw the falling of the stars, which so encouraged the saints and frightened our enemies. It was one of the grandest sights I ever beheld. From that time, not a drop of blood came from me, and I never afterwards felt the slightest pain or inconvenience from my wounds, except that I was somewhat weak from the loss of blood. He lives. By the way, one of these bullets stays in his body and you can read the obituary, we'll link this in the show notes, but he lives to a ripe old age till 1895. Now he's shot in 1833. So it's not like he just lives a couple of months. Like he lives a long time and Philo Dibble does a lot of great things in church history. And the thing that really struck me about this story, besides the fact that it's miraculous and besides the fact that Newell Knight lays his hands on his head and Philo Dibble lives, is the sad part about this story. And the, the sad part is, At this time period in this Missouri violence, Newell's wife Sally dies. And so as I've been reading the story, I just think what a miracle it is to see this great pillar of church history and he gets to live and yet your own wife dies and Newell never lost faith. And we'll talk about this later, but he marries this wonderful gal named Lydia who comes out of tragedy. And together Newell and Lydia build a life and then there's more tragedy, but it's also coupled with faith.
0: Do you remember the beginning of Job? I, know, I don't know if it's fictitious or literal, but it sure is symbolic that God and Satan are having a conversation and God points to Job and says to Satan, have you seen my servant, Job? And I can't help but think that God has that same conversation with Satan and points to Joseph Knight and says to Satan, have you seen my servant, Joseph Knight? Look at this guy. Look at this guy. And I think he's saying to the whole church, This is a model for all of you to follow. Joseph Knight stands as a sentinel for the church for all of us to follow. And I am just so thrilled that the Lord gives us section 12 and we get to draw our attention to Joseph Knight. I just want to paint this picture of it's not just Joseph, but it's like
1: this family is just pure water. And they come from this great source of Joseph and Polly. How did they talk to their children before the restoration? Because their children are stalwart, and when they hear Joseph Smith explaining what he saw, they're on board, and not one of them see the plates. This is not the Whitmer family. And I find this interesting as I've studied the Whitmer family. So many of them fell away, and yet they saw, and the knights don't see. And what does that mean for me? It's just so
0: inspiring for me, so... Now, it's in that very setting, knowing who this family is at this moment, who they will be, it's for those of us who are years down the road, being able to look back and know who this Knight family was, Section 12 takes on such significant meaning. So after the Missouri violence, they leave, they go to Nauvoo.
1: And at this point, Joseph Knight Sr. is kind of old, like he's pushing 70. He's getting up there. And so Newell's kind of taking care of him, supplying for his wants, and he's in poor health. So the high council in Nauvoo, they donate a house for him. And one day, Joseph sees poor Joseph Knight hobbling without a cane. And Joseph's like, bro, take this. And he gives him a cane. And he says, take this, and I want you to have this. And that cane, according to what I've read, is still in the Knight family. And Joseph had great love for him. And and Joseph, a few times... Gave a tribute to Joseph Knight. And one of them, I want to just read this from uh, January of 1842. Joseph Smith said this For 15 years, he, Joseph Knight, has been faithful and true, and even handed and exemplary, and virtuous and kind, never deviating to the right or to the left. Behold, he is a righteous man. May God Almighty lengthen out the old man's days, and it shall be said of him by the sons of Zion, while there is one of them remaining, that this was a man in Israel, a faithful man in Israel, therefore his name shall never be forgotten. That'd be so cool to have the Savior say that about you, or to have Joseph say that about you. And that's who he was. He was just that guy. He had 13 children and stepchildren. They were all in Nauvoo as adults. The one exception is we don't know where Nahum is. We just don't have records. Every single one of these goes west. This is foreshadowing what's coming next with sections 14 through 17. But the opposite of this, what we read about David Whitmer. David Whitmer was a man who heard the-
0: Whitmer as well. Yeah.
1: But David heard the voice of God. He saw an angel. And so I just can't say this enough. Like the Knight family, they believe and they're true and they don't see the plates. Like I said, the whole stream goes west, the whole family- And so the family goes, they go with um, the saints, they go west. And from William Hartley, he writes this. He says, the Knight families knew Joseph in his early adult days, back when he was accused of digging for gold and using peep stones. Such criticisms did not make them doubt Joseph Smith's calling. If the prophet had been a charlatan or not genuinely religious as detractors then and since have charged, the large Knight clan... Would have known it and would not have followed him so faithfully for so long. Their devotion to the prophet was based on knowing him well, and it bears witness that his character, from when he was 20 to when he dies at 38, was righteous and good. His critics have questioned his motives, truthfulness, and divine claims. His friends have provided several evidences to demonstrate that God used him to restore truth to the earth. Such debates and discussions when marshaling evidence should not ignore the Knight family as long-term witnesses to the prophet Joseph Smith. They had been loyal to the prophet longer than anyone except the Smiths, and they felt Joseph was everything he claimed to be. And so with that, Joseph Knight Sr. is headed to Zion, and he dies at Mount Pisgah in Iowa in 1847. And one of the things you can do when you study church history is just look at where they die. Where are they facing when they die? Now, I'm not the judge. I'm so glad I'm not the judge. But as I've studied the Knight family and as I've studied Joseph Knight specifically, this goes with Polly, this goes with Phoebe, this goes with their children. They're pointed towards Zion and they're headed there. Polly gets to Missouri and dies. Joseph gets to Mount Pisgah. But I think in God's panoramic picture, they're coming home. And to come back full circle with this universalistic doctrine that Joseph Knight is raised on, I do see God Almighty with his hands outstretched. He honors my agency, but I see a patient God that says, come home. Section 12, to me,
0: really makes sense when we understand the character of this family. It's embodied in Joseph Knight and the Knight family. So let's turn to section 12, and this takes on new meaning. And it's an invitation. I really do think the Lord raises up sentinels and points to them to say, here you go. He, he does that throughout the gospel. The reason the Melchizedek Priesthood is called the Melchizedek Priesthood, there's a reason not to call it by its original name, but why Melchizedek? He says in section 107, it's because Melchizedek was such a great high priest. We call the Abrahamic Covenant the Abrahamic Covenant because he's the model of the covenant. He received every blessing and lived up to every responsibility. With that setting, I think every Latter-day Saint needs to pay particular attention to section 12, given at the very early part of the restoration, before there's any missionaries, before there's any bishops, before there's any stake presidents, before anyone really holds a calling in the church. The Lord gives section 12, and He holds up the Knight family. I'm so glad that we just have 12 and 13 this week, and we can focus primarily on these great sections. Verse 7, after giving the whole introduction that's repeated in 4 and 6 and 11, notice it's just word for word up until verse 7, and now it becomes personal. I speak unto you and also all those who have desires to bring forth and establish this work. And I really do hear the Lord shouting out to every Latter-day Saint today. No one can assist in this work except he shall be humble and full of love, having faith, hope, and charity, being temperate in all things. It's like Mike's been saying, I just don't think there's a better description of the Knight family than those words right there. So I don't think the Lord is speaking to Joseph Knight in this section. I truly believe the Lord is speaking to the church and holding Joseph Knight up and saying, know this story. Know the story of the Knight family. They're just steady. And know what they represent. And then as you look at that story, I'm going to say, I just think we need to shake with Sinai-like thunders as we read section 12. If you want to work in this church, you need to be humble and full of love, have faith, hope, charity, and be temperate. Just a thought on a couple of those words. First of all, what does it mean to be humble? It's funny when you, we start discussing humility, the more we try to define it, the more we realize it's almost impossible to define it's certainly not something you can set a goal. You can't set a goal to be more humble.
1: And how do you quantify it? Because today the, I was humble today. Yeah.
0: The more you, oh, I accomplished my goal today. I was humble today. And you've just lost the goal. You know, my goal is to be more humble. I'm a whole lot more humble than you are. You've just lost the goal. How do you know? Goal. Well, I have my
1: scorecard, That's right.
0: right. <laughs> and so how do you work on humility? How do you, how do you Be more humble. How do you practice humility? Well, those of you who've been listening to this podcast for a long time know that I'm a great fan of C.S. Lewis. I was reading in Mere Christianity, and I came across a statement that forever changed me. It's C.S. Lewis's definition of humility. And he just simply says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. I'm going to pause there because I think that is so profound. We think pride is to lift yourself up, therefore, humility is to tear yourself down. We think it's an act of humility to tear yourself down. That if someone were to say, Oh, what a wonderful podcast, and Mike and I, Oh, I don't know, we could have done so much better. Oh, they're so humble. We have a tendency to think that humility is to tear ourselves down. Someone compliments your clothing. You say, oh, it's just a rag. And C.S. Lewis is saying that's not humility. That's actually pride. That's not humility. But we're trying. We're trying. (laughs) So let me continue. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you, of course, that he's nobody probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. And then this profound statement from C.S. Lewis, he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself. At all. And that statement changed my world. You don't practice humility. Because to practice humility, you're focused on your practice of humility. The way you become more humble is you focus on those you have the opportunity to serve. It's not about you, it's about the God who sacrificed so that we could have salvation, it's about the people in your class. It's about what they need. It's about them. Humble people are not thinking about being humble. They're not thinking about themselves at all. They are focused like the master they love on everyone else. And right here in section 12, the Lord says, if you're going to come in and join me in this work, that's the quality that needs to exemplify your service in the church. It's not about you. Now, I know this quotation can be a little hurtful for those of us who have misused this, but I think it's valuable to read. Now, let me share a quotation that is painful for me because, ouch, this is what I've done. But, As long as we've got all our cards on the table, let me read it. David A. Bednar was speaking to teachers in the church, and he said, We must be careful to remember in our service that we are conduits and channels. We are not the light. It is never about me, and it is never about you. In fact, ready? anything you or I do as instructor that knowingly and intentionally draws attention to self— In the messages we present, in the methods we use, or in our personal demeanor is a form of priestcraft that inhabits the teaching effectiveness of the Holy Ghost. If I teach in a way that draws attention to me, I'm not being humble. And the Lord is saying, you've got to be humble if you're going to do this work. It's not about you. And I know you want to be successful and you want the people in your class to like you. And so we bring treats and we kind of do more than we should so that the attention draws to us. It's almost like
1: it's a natural thing. It I think sure it, we is. Fall into it, don't we? Thing. Yeah,
0: it sure is a natural and thing. Maybe that's why we're warned. But hence, we've got the Knight family and we've got the Lord early on saying, no one can assist in this work unless he's humble it can't be about you and I. It can't be about me. It's not my name on the side of the church. It can't be my way. It can't draw attention to me and my expertise. It's got to be about the people we serve and the
1: master we love. So I think we can learn from this because the things that a lot of people leave the church over in 1838— The knights went through that fire too, and they came out the other side. It's not like our day is any different. We have people fighting against the church today. We have apostasy today. So we can take the knights, and and maybe that's why it speaks to my heart, is they're just so inspiring. But I don't see them saying, hey, look at me. They're just doing the work. They're putting in the time. Yeah, they're just so inspiring, but they are. They're so humble. Are you
0: humble? Is it about you? Joseph's going to realize that it's so hard for people to be the number two man. Oliver Cowdery is going to struggle with that. So many people are going to struggle to be the number two man and not necessarily get the limelight that Joseph gets. And so I just throw that invitation out to all of us. All of us need to be humble. And humility is simply about focusing on other people. It's not about me. I had an experience in the temple that I got to... I got to share. Early on in our marriage, I think it was my sister's ceiling. I'm not sure. But my wife and I were at a ceiling. There are parallel mirrors in ceiling rooms. And I love parallel mirrors. I always have. When I was a little boy, my grandma had a three-way mirror. And I just loved that. So after the ceremony, we're just kind of standing and waiting to talk to the couple. And I'm looking at the parallel mirrors. Now, the beauty about parallel mirrors is they go on and on and on forever, but there's one thing that gets in the way and prevents you from seeing clearly through eternity. It's you. So I had this crazy thought that maybe if I moved fast enough, I could get myself out of the way and I could see clearly to eternity. So I'm kind of just jumping around trying to get my head out of the way and move back in time to see. And my wife just elbows me and says, what are you doing? And I said to her, I'm trying to see eternity, but I can't because all I can see is me. And that was a defining moment where the Spirit just came down and said, would you please hear what you just said? I'm trying to see eternity clearly, but I can't because all I see is me. Lesson learned, Lord. Lesson learned. So I would invite all of you, regardless of what your calling is, To be humble. I love one of my favorite moments in in section 124 where the Lord's referring to stake presidents. He calls them stake presidents, and then he corrects it almost immediately and says, or stake servants. He calls the stake president the stake servant. What verse is that? We got to read that. It's in verse 134, section 124, verse 134. The Lord says, which ordinance is instituted for the purpose of qualifying those who shall be appointed standing presidents or servants over the different stakes scattered abroad? Presidents or servants? What if we just didn't use that title anymore, stake president, and we called them stake servants? And so I invite everyone to be humble. Now, the next one I would add is the Lord says, full of love. I would remind everyone what Jesus said at the Last Supper. I think this is very significant, and we sometimes don't pay attention. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Meaning, the old commandment was, thou shalt love one another, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus says, No, 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 no. The new commandment is love your neighbor as Jesus loves your neighbor. And then, verse 35, Jesus says, By this shall men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. The defining attribute of our service needs to be love, not scholarship not callings, love. The defining attribute of His disciples is that they love like He loves. Now, I would just, I would have you ponder, is the reputation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the communities in which we live such that people know us as a loving people? Are we known as being loving? Because if not, we are not true disciples of Jesus Christ. Do you see why section 12 is so significant? By this shall men know you are my disciple, humble and full of love with faith, hope, and charity.
1: Section 13, the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood, Joseph and Oliver are translating the Book of Mormon. They read about baptism. They're in 3rd Nephi. They're working in that home that's right there along the Susquehanna River. It's the home that Joseph and Emma live in. The walk from where they're translating to the river is super short, and that's where they're praying to know more about this. They get the revelation. John the Baptist comes and restores the Aaronic Priesthood. That's kind of the context of Section 13.
0: And I love the prayer. Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, confer the priesthood of Aaron. The Aaronic priesthood holds the keys of the ministering of angels. And I don't know that we need to sit here and say, "Well, it's an Aaronic versus a Melchizedek." I think it's the priesthood has been restored and has the holds the keys of the ministering of angels. And just. Just a side note, do you remember when President Nelson, at the very first general conference where he was sustained as president of the church, kind of made the comment that there are a lot of people in the church that don't know the difference between a prayer and a blessing, and that we need to bless? We have on earth the keys of the ministering of angels, and we need to bless each other. And it is within the rights of those who hold the priesthood to exercise the key of the ministering of angels, and to call down angels as sentinels and protectors over those we love. Bless people. I just think it's very significant that the priesthood, the ironic priesthood, holds the keys of the ministering of angels, the gospel of repentance and the baptism of immersion for the remission of sins. So priests can now baptize. And Joseph, you go baptize. Oliver, you go baptize. Because you now hold the keys, and you can now baptize. I love where he says, now Joseph,
1: you baptize Oliver, and Oliver, you baptize Joseph. And I remember the first time I was a young man, and I heard this story, and I thought, okay, I get John the Baptist restoring the of priest, and I get that idea. Like, what a message to the Christian world that the man who baptized Jesus brought back that authority. I mean, that's just a gold star. But why didn't John baptize him? Why does he have Joseph baptize Oliver and Oliver
0: baptize Joseph? Why that? And one of the great principles of heaven is that God will not do for man what man can do for himself. I love when Jesus raises Lazarus. He asks them to move the stone. Now, compared to raising the dead, how does moving a stone compare? He could have easily asked the stone to move and the stone would have obeyed him. Like Yoda, he could have just He moved could have yoded the ship out of the the you know Dagobah water and just moved that stone, but he didn't. He says, "You move the stone. You do what you can do and I'll do what you can't do." When I understood that, it changed me. Yeah, John says, I'll give you the priesthood keys because you can't do that. But once you have the keys, you can baptize each other, and you should baptize each other. And then what did they do, Mike, after they were baptized? Then they ordained they con- each other yeah, to each other, yeah. each other to the priesthood, and so it's like, wait a minute, they just got the priesthood yeah. from John. They baptized, and then they ordained each other to the priesthood. And the reason for that is no one to get the order right. We've got to get the order right. You get baptized first, and then you receive the priesthood. So receiving the priesthood from John was an emergency. We have to do this because we can't go forward any other way. But you need to ordain yourselves because after you get baptized, that's when you get the, you receive the, an office in the priesthood. And so they got the order right.
1: I, I can't even say how many lights went on in my head when I was first grasping that idea. I mean, God could have handed Joseph Smith an English leather bound book of Mormon with everything in it. And by the way, he could have saved a ton of money. We could say a lot of problems for Martin Harris. Hey, here's 5,000 leather bound copies. Oh, by the way, I'm going to sign them, right? No, it doesn't work that way. Joseph get to work. And I think this is important for all of us. Like the kingdom of God is built because we are the kingdom. Like God's building us. We're building the kingdom, but the metaphor of building is all throughout the temple. And it's all throughout the early writings of the
0: Christians It's this message of roll up your sleeves and get to work. It's the Christus in Europe that during the war had his hands blown off and they decided not to replace the hands. Instead, they put a plaque on it that says, we are the hands. We are the Lord's hands. And it's that whole idea is we do all that we can do and we leave to him what we can't do. Yeah. That's
1: the story told by Elder Ugdorf.
0: Uchtdorf, yep. World War II.
1: The statue of Christ was damaged and the, and the hands were removed. We'll link this in the show notes. We are the hands. We are Such the a hands. great story.
0: Okay, so they received the Aaronic priesthood, they received the keys. What I'd like to focus on is the last phrase that John utters. He says, This shall never be taken again from the earth. Notice the again, meaning it was taken from the earth. This shall never be taken again from the earth until. "...the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness." So Joseph writes the word until in section 13. Now, when Oliver gives us his rendition of this same event, if you go to the very end of Pearl of Great Price and to Joseph Smith history, where we have, after verse 77, we have a whole lot of text that's kind of in a different font, those are the words of Oliver Cowdery. And we don't number them because it's not Joseph Smith's account. But it's significant to hear Oliver's version of this same event, because notice Oliver doesn't say the word until. Oliver uses the word that. Do you have it, Mike? Read that.
1: Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer this priesthood and this authority, which shall remain upon the earth, that the sons of Levi may yet offer an offering unto the Lord.
0: In so Joseph says it's not going to be taken until they offer this offering, and Oliver says the priesthood is restored that the sons of Levi may yet offer an offering. Now, I don't want to get into what did John really say. I don't think that's the point because we all can interpret inspiration in many ways. I think that and until are both correct. The priesthood will not leave the earth until the offering is made. No one's going to interfere with this offering, okay? We're not going to lose the priesthood. We're not going to fall into apostasy. The Lord is saying the priesthood is not going to leave until. But I love the word that because it suggests the whole reason we're restoring this priesthood is so that the offering can be made. Now, in section 128, verse 24, the Lord uses the word that, He's speaking of the sons of Levi, and he uses the word that. Now, we'll get into section 128 in a minute, but just while you're looking at it, section 128, verse 24, the Lord says that they can make this offering. So, the the Aaronic priesthood was restored so that we can make this offering. Now, I know there's a lot to this, and I don't want to contradict prophets, seers, and revelators who have interpreted that. I think prophecy has multiple fulfillments. But I want to point out what I believe Joseph Smith interpreted, at least one of the interpretations of that prophecy. So if I were—imagine I have a whiteboard, and I've written sons of Aaron, sons of Levi, and then an offering— And then it has to be done in righteousness. Those are the key words. The sons of Levi will offer an offering in righteousness. Now, turn with me to section 84 to the oath and covenant of the priesthood. We're going to add to that, we're going to add some words. We're looking for that same idea sons of Levi offering righteousness. In section 84, when the Lord gives the oath and covenant of the priesthood, beforehand, verse 31, section 84, verse 31, Therefore, as I said concerning the sons of Moses, for the sons of Moses and also the sons of Aaron shall offer an acceptable offering. So we add not just the sons of Aaron. It's not just an Aaronic priesthood thing. The sons of Moses and the sons of Aaron Shall offer the offering. So it's Melchizedek and Aaronic. It's not just Aaronic. This is a priesthood offering, all priesthood. And notice that we add the word acceptable. So we've got sons of Moses, sons of Aaron, the offering, and it has to be acceptable, but this time the Lord tells us where it will occur. Notice the Lord's own words in verse 31. The sons of Moses and also of Aaron shall offer an acceptable offering and sacrifice in the house of the Lord. This offering is going to be offered in the house of the Lord. So here's our key phrases. Sons of Moses, sons of Aaron will offer an offering that has to be acceptable and it will be offered inside the temple. Now, Whatever that means, and however that is fulfilled, there is at least one specific fulfillment that Joseph Smith emphasizes. And this is the fulfillment I would emphasize today. Section 128 is the great section where the Lord Joseph is introducing the salvation of the dead. Now, verse 24 watch all of our keywords come together. Behold, the great day of the Lord is at hand and who can abide the day of his coming and who can stand when he appeareth, which incidentally are the words of Malachi in chapter 4, where he talks about the coming of Elijah. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. Here we go. Are your ears perking up? the Lord will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that, see, there's the word that, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Here is Joseph Smith's conclusion. Let us therefore, notice the therefore, it's connected to the sacrifice and the offering of the sons of Levi. Let us therefore, as a church, and as a people. So it's no longer sons of Levi and sons of Moses alone. It's using the priesthood that is held in our church. Let us as a church and as a people and as Latter-day Saints offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now watch his conclusion. He's going to pinpoint what that means. Let us present in His holy temple, when it is finished, a book containing the records of our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptation. There's every single word. So going back to section 13, the Aaronic priesthood is restored and won't be taken away until and so that the sons of Levi can offer an acceptable offering In the house of the Lord. And that offering, at least one aspect of it, is to offer the Lord a book containing all the records of the temple ordinances of all of his children. We have sealed the families together, we have endowed them and sealed them. Lord, we have done our work. So, the Lord is placing upon the church in section 13 a tremendous duty, living and dead. You've got to perform the ordinances that will save families. Once again, very early on in the church. Mike, how many times have we seen this? Early on in the church, we're right back to the concept of family and temple and sealings. It's right there at the beginning. Section two was all about family and temple and ceilings. And if we don't restore the if we don't bring back the keys of Elijah, the whole earth will be wasted because it didn't fulfill its purpose.
1: I think this also ties in all that stuff with Revelation, the book of life. And really early ancient Near Eastern tradition was that there was a book of life that the gods had, but that we had to have stewardship over. Now just think about this. What's in the book? Our names. How do we get saved? We get his name. So there is an exchange of a name. Just want that to simmer in your mind, an exchange of a name. You get his, you give him yours.
0: And it's recorded in the book. Yeah, I mean, just think about that. So section 13, this isn't just, oh, the Aaronic Priesthood is restored, so let's go camping in May and and remember the restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood. I loved those father-son campouts in May where we could remember the the restoration of the priesthood. Uh, Those were wonderful. So much I could say about camping. But this is so much more than that. This is not just the restoration of the sacrament. This isn't just the restoration of baptism. This isn't just that young men can now pass and bless the sacrament. This is a commission to every Latter-day Saint to perform the ordinances necessary to save all of our families. That means we've got to build temples. We've got to preach the gospel. We've got to perfect the saints. We have got to perfect that book because right now that book is not acceptable. We're headed there. Too many people are missing from the book. We've got to get the records done. We've got to get the ceilings. Do you remember what you said about the mirrors
1: when you're looking at them? And now I don't know if this is in every temple, but what's right
0: over your head? The massive chandelier. I
1: think one of our listeners wrote this and I thought it was brilliant. She wrote, what if the chandelier is a symbol of the tree? So the the mirrors, like the roots and the branches, but also it's up and down. We're back to that
0: tree imagery of the Lord is reaching out his hand saying, bring home my family. Yeah. Seal them, make them whole. And so before the Book of Mormon is even translated, the Lord is saying, I'm setting the stones in place so that you can build the building in which you will present that book to the Lord. Everything we do should be to build that book. When you teach primary, you're teaching those young people to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that they pursue their own ordinances and get their name in that book. When you speak in sacrament, you're pushing people and encouraging people to get their name in that book and then to go do it for the dead and then to find go on a mission and serve so that people who know nothing about the ordinances of the gospel can get their name in the book. Our job is to present the Lord with a book containing the completed ordinances of all of his children. So if you haven't
1: been to the temple, get there. Make a way.
0: Get your name in the book. Yeah. Whatever you need to do, get your name in the book, and then spend the rest of your life helping everyone else get their name in the book. And that's what the Lord is doing here. So see Section 13 is a whole lot more than just, hey, yay, now the deacons can pass the sacrament again. That is an important thing, and I don't mean to minimize that or to be facetious, but this is the commission of the whole church save my children.
1: That's beautiful. So good. With that, we'll end. We will pick up next time
0: with 14 through 17. Which are the Whitmer brothers. It's going to be good. And again, we'll contrast the Knights and the Whitmers. But the Whitmers are going to do some wonderful things. And so we'll talk about John, Peter, and David at least in 14, 15, and 16. And then the 3 we're coming up on the three witnesses. And with that, we'll see you next week.